Lord, we thank you that your love is great and that you cover us with your love. Lord, we mentioned at the beginning of our service your word that tells us that blessed are they those that you bring near to your courts who dwell in your presence. Uh, you said that we would be satisfied with good things and that we would experience the holiness of your temple. God, I pray through your spirit that, Lord, as we have experienced many good things by being in your house, that, Lord, you would help us to experience good things in your word. Lord, you open our hearts to your truths. Would you speak through the teachers of the friends of Jesus to these young ones? And God, uh, through your spirit, would you expand our hearts and our minds on who you are, Jesus, and what your purposes are in the kingdom and where we fit as your church. Lord, help us to know that, that we might enjoy you and glorify you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. like to welcome all again to faith and to our uh, message series in the gospel of Matthew. We've been in a journey through uh, this gospel of Matthew about the king and the kingdom, which is about uh, written really for the early church, the church that was under persecution, uh, under attack for their faith. And Matthew was really written to help them not to stop speaking, not to stop witnessing about their Savior. And so Matthew gives one missional encouragement after the next about who Jesus is, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Christ, the promised one who came, and that he came and what he came to do, which was to save people from their sins. And so he proved it through miracles and signs and wonders and healings, and he gathered and equipped a disciple group to himself to prepare them for the mission after he would die and rise and ascend to heaven. So last week, uh, pastor Irwin, our visiting uh, pastor from City of Hope, came and encouraged us with uh, a, a, the parable of the weeds and uh, the tares. And he talked about how the kingdom of God is a messy kingdom mix. And he said that we as believers need to be those who endure with patience because we have a merciful God who continues to, to sow good seed until harvest time. But today we are looking at a pivotal account in Matthew's gospel. The ministry of Christ is, has been heating up in Galilee. Jesus has been feeding the thousands. He's been healing the sick. He's been casting out demons. And he has been speaking boldly about the kingdom of God. Crowds are gathering around him. And he's making the religious leaders very angry and jealous. And they want it uh, him to perform more signs for him to prove himself. But Jesus refused to play those games. They started to call Jesus a Beelzebub, which means prince of the demons. And Jesus then called these religious leaders hypocrites, blind guides, uh, a wicked and adulterous generation, which was not the way that you win friends and influence people. And so here in Matthew 16, Starting with verse 13, Jesus takes his disciples aside and he speaks more pointedly about himself, his mission, and his calling 
for all who would follow him. And he asked, starts asking them very important questions, starting with verse 13. Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and who, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. My first job uh, after graduating from Virginia Tech was uh, as a sales engineer for steel company uh, that fabricated steel. It was called Montague Betts. Uh, it was in Lynchburg, Virginia. Uh, it's no longer functioning, but I always remember the, uh, the interview that I had in the brochure that they gave me, because on that brochure was the World Trade Center. They had fabricated the coarse steel in, that, in those twin towers, this signature structure in the skyline of New York City that was such a, uh, a statement of the power and the wealth and the strength, the economic strength of our country. On 9-11, uh, September the 11th, 2001, I was in our White House administrative offices next door. And uh, that morning, I received a phone call from my younger brother, Chris, who said, Craig, turn on the TV. We're under attack. And the staff grabbed this old television set from the third story and brought it down to the conference room. And we turned it on, and we were speechless, as many of you who remember that day. A few minutes after watching, we saw with horror 
and unbelief, the first building collapsing and disintegrating. How in the world could 110 stories of such massive, strong steel structure disintegrate like that? And then we saw the second tower collapse. Approximately 3,000 lives were lost, and with that came a deep wound in the soul of our nation. We felt a profound sense of personal and national vulnerability. We were not as safe and secure as we once thought. Increased church attendance actually occurred after then. Increased attendance to prayer meetings. People were looking for answers. What is real? What is permanent? Where is our security? What is our lasting glory? And where is our hope? Well, here in Matthew 16, we find Jesus in his first occasion talking about building something. Jesus is talking about building something that is indestructible, something that all the demonic forces of hell will not have the power to bring down. It will endure. It will prevail. He says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so here Jesus is telling his disciples, and he's telling you and I, and he's calling us to join him in building his church. Now there's a lot in this passage, but I want to briefly review with you something about Jesus, about the church, and about you. <laughs> Jesus, the church, and you. Who is Jesus? And what is his church? And where is your identity? He said to them, but you, who do you say that I am? Now, Jesus is near the zenith of his popularity in Galilee. After miracles and healings and feeding the thousands, people were just convinced that Jesus was the long-awaited that. Uh, son of David, the Messiah, who was going to restore the physical Israel, who would conquer the enemies of Israel to the for and, and restore to their former glory. In John's gospel, it says that they intended to make Jesus king by force. Now, I don't know how you can do that. You know, Jesus would probably say, I will not run, and if elected, I will not serve. <laughs> well, Jesus, he gets spiritual on them, and he tells them that he is not sent to restore the physical order at this time. He came to restore a spiritual order, to bring salvation from their sins. He talks about being the bread of heaven and how the flesh counts for nothing. And from that time on, it says, many disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And he turns to his disciples in John 6. He says, do you want to leave me too? And Jesus asked the twelve that, and Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Now Jesus is coming to his disciples in this incident, and he's probing. He's probing his disciples again to the surface of their identity. He gets to the surface of their identity here and his true identity, and he says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And of course... They say, well, he tells them exactly what people were thinking. Oh, some say you're John the Baptist. You know, you've been re resurrected from the dead. Some say that you're Elijah, you know, the, the great prophet, or Jeremiah, one of the prophets. All these were honored thoughts to be considered among those numbers. But, of course, none of those were accurate 
And Jesus turns to the disciples, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Peter nailed it. Peter nailed it. Now, when Jesus walked on the water in Matthew chapter 14, he calmed the storm. The people, the, even Peter was walking on the water for a while. And in that process of that stormy night, and Jesus comes out on the water, he calms the sea, and they worshipped him and said, truly, you are the son of God. But in that intensive, emotional, kind of uh, foxhole context, they declare that Jesus is such. What about every day? What in the calm moments, the conversational time, do they still hold that conviction? And so Jesus asked the question, not just generally, he's not just satisfied with what the crowds think. He wants to know, what do they think? What do his disciples say that he is? That is the defining, eternally charged question. Jesus is not just a prophet or a great prophet or even the greatest of the prophets. He was the long-awaited, anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, the hope of Israel. He is the son of the living God. Uh, there was an Anglican pastor, J.C. Ryle, in the 1800s. He said, at first sight, a careless reader may see nothing remarkable in these words of the apostle. He may think it extraordinary that they should, they, they should call for such strong commendation from our Lord, but such thoughts arise from ignorance and inconsideration. The glory of Peter's confession lies in this, that he made it when few were with Christ and many were against him. He made it when the rulers of his own nation, the scribes, the Pharisees, and priests, were all opposed to his master. He made it when our Lord was in the form of a servant, without wealth, without royal dignity, and without any visible marks of a king. To make such a confession at that time required great faith and a great decision of character. The confession itself was an embodiment of all Christianity. And so Jesus, he comes to his disciples, and he comes to Peter, and he comes to you and I, and he asks, what about you? Who do you say that I am? This is the most important question that you and I are called to answer. And if you can say that you are Jesus, that you are the promised one from God, the, from all ages, that God had promised you to come, the only son, the living son of God, who has come to save us from our sins, who has come to restore all things according to God's purpose, glory, and glory, then you need to say that that wasn't revealed to you. It wasn't just because you got great intelligence and that you've thought through all these things and you've come to this conclusion but as Jesus said, blessed are you, because this wasn't revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by your Father in heaven. If you think that that's who Jesus is, which is who Jesus is, then you have to acknowledge that this is because God has placed that reality in your heart. It's a great affirmation that God is at work in you. And if you're, not, if you're here and you haven't come to that place, you know... It took a long time for these disciples to get to that place. Continue to expose yourself to Christ and what he is doing. Continue to expand your mind and your heart. 
But know this, that the time that comes, there's a time of decision that will come, and you will have to answer that question. Who is Jesus? But with that, what is the church? And so Jesus tells Peter, I tell you, Peter, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus said, I will build my church. This is the first time that Jesus spoke the word church in Matthew. The word church has different meaning for many people. For some, the word conjures up warm thoughts and memories. Some have images of people who genuinely are, who love them and are, who care for them, who learned wonderful things about God's word that have brought transformation. Uh, people have found opportunities to serve and lead that have energized them, and they have great thoughts and memories when they hear the word church. <laughs> But for others, when they hear the word church, it brings up hard and painful memories. My earliest memory of church was I was four years old. I was sitting in the front row with my other four siblings, and I was ripping up a bulletin in little pieces and dropping them on the floor. And obviously, I was probably disrupting the pastor's thoughts. And I, my first memory was I was going out the vestibule, out the, 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 the uh, entryway, and the pastor was there, and he picked me up, and with an angry face, shook me and rebuked me. That's my first memory of church. The other memory was uh, being bored to death. And I had really zero interest and having anything to do with the church once I was released from my family. Somehow God captured my heart. Uh, but for many people, when the word church comes up, there is deep disappointment with leaders. Uh, there may be moral failure. There may be a church that has only made you feel guilty, uh, that you have never done enough, you can never give enough, you never can be enough. And you just feel worn down, and you just see division, and you see leaders acting more like hirelings doing a job versus good shepherds who love their flock. A LifeWay research surveyed adults who don't go to church and found 79% said Christianity is more about organized religion than loving God and loving people. And that 72% said church is full of a lot of hypocrites. Now, here's the deal. None of this is surprising to Jesus. <laughs> In Matthew's gospel, it made clear that the church of the kingdom of God is, as Erwin said last week, a mixed bag on earth with a blend of authentic, humble, sincere servants and true believers mixed with hypocrites, judgmental legalists, pharisaical gnat strainers. In the kingdom of God on earth, there will be a mixture of wheat and tares, good fish and bad fish, sheep and goats, true believers and false. But here in Matthew 16, Jesus also makes clear that the church despite the messiness of the church, was not an optional entity to Christ, nor was it a temporary institution. Jesus said to his disciples, I will build my church. I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And so Jesus is serious about the church, and those who are followers of Christ are called to own his passion for the church. St. Augustine said this, 
He cannot have God for his father who do not have the church for his mother. Jesus would say, love me, love my bride. <laughs> I had a, a professor in seminary, uh, he, and he startled me once. He says, men, be very careful how you talk about the bride of Christ. It's like, wow. I mean, it's very personal to Jesus, his church. Scottish theologian Sinclair Ferguson said, Jesus' vision was to build a church, not to claim isolated souls. Jesus came to purchase a church. The whole letter of Paul to the Ephesians was about God's people being a household, being built to be a holy temple where he lives by his spirit, where Christ is the head of the church to display the manifold wisdom of God before the universe. The gospel was not only to save individual Christians, but to claim a church. When our Lord Christ's heart was broken, written on his heart was the church, his beloved bride. And Amos chapter 9, 11 says, In that day I will restore David's fallen tent. I will repair its broken places, restore its ruins, and build it as it used to be. And God is saying that he's going to rebuild out of the ruins, out of the broken structure of the Old Testament people. And he's going to build a new community out of the ashes. The word church, ecclesia, which is used here, means assembly, the gathering of citizens caught out. And it harkens back to God gathering and assembling and calling his people out of Egypt, out of slavery, out of bondage, out of the broken, ruthless taskmaster to worship their creator, their liberator, their redeemer, their savior who treasured them and wanted them to know a deep rest. You see, Jesus is this climactic deliverer who has rescued and redeemed lost sons and daughters, saving them from slavery and bondage and the power of sin to present us to a father. And he proudly says, as Hebrews 2 says, here I am and the children that God has given me. You know, there's many metaphors and images uh, given in the scriptures to help us to understand the nature of the church as multifaceted character here. Jesus is using the language of a building, the building of God, a structure that has a foundation and a superstructure. In Hebrews 11, it talks about a city with foundations whose builder and architect is God. And First Peter talks about you as members of God's household are living stones. Living stones are being built as a spiritual house. And it says in Ephesians 2, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple where he dwells by his spirit. But it's also called the body of Christ, a united body, formerly alienated, historically hostile, divided people, Jews and Gentiles, who have been reconciled by the blood of Jesus, who have become this one body, with one Savior and one Lord. He says, consequently, you're, you are fellow citizens with God's people, members of God's household. There's one body and there's one Father. And in Romans 12, he talks about how in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to each other. There's different members, there's different gifts, but we have one body. And Jesus Christ is the head. He is over all things. And then it talks about not just the building and not just the body, but it talks, he talks about the bride. In Ephesians 5, the charge to the husbands is, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
to make her holy. And he says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. The church is engaged to... The church is the engaged bride waiting for her marriage to the Lamb. The wedding feast of the Lamb, the climactic destiny of God's people. And he says, I saw new Jerusalem, or a new heaven, and a new earth, and the first heaven and earth would pass away. And he saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven as from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. The bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. Jesus loves this messed up bride. It's a messed up bride, but he loves this bride. What kind of people does God used what kind of people does christ use to build his church well he uses a person like peter <laughs> he, lo- he he takes peter's like the stumbling fumbling little faith peter who sometimes gets it right but most times gets it wrong he takes a sinful man who deserts him who who denies him and the lord forgives him and the lord loves him and the lord makes him a rock to be built upon it was uh, someone had a parable of an angel talking to Jesus, and he was asking Jesus, well, what is your strategy? What is your strategy in this building? And, and uh, Jesus points to these 12 disciples, you know, <laughs> and uh, who, uh, who sleep when they're called to pray, who are jockeying for power and positions and prestige, who are dense-headed and weak men in so many ways. And the angel looks at these 12, and he asks Jesus, well, what is your second strategy? (laughs) He says, there is no other. This is my only strategy. Obviously, there's a lot of controversies around exactly what the passage means concerning uh, Peter as this authority. But what you need to recognize is the main thing is that if uh, what Jesus is saying, if you don't understand what Peter is saying about Jesus, you are not in the church. You are not in Christ. All religions, salvation is often through striving, but here is one. Salvation is through receiving. And so we find that you need to be part of the church. Christ has not just called you as an isolated Christian to be part of an independent, individualistic movement. He's called you to be part of a community of faith. Uh, there was a guy named Harry Blaymeyers who wrote this uh, book, uh, Highway to Heaven is a Fantasy, about a man on the journey uh, whose faith is being tested as he seeks heaven. And he meets this guide by the name of Emmanuel who talks to him about his need to choose heaven. He tells him there is, there is only one condition to be fulfilled. I must choose heaven and choose it fully. He says, in a sense, it is the only condition, but it embraces much that is easily overlooked. For instance, he said, you can enter this city, you can enter this city only as a member of a worshiping body. <laughs> You cannot choose heaven in individual isolation, for that would not be heaven at all. Now, you are saved by faith alone, through grace alone, through Christ alone. 
But Christ decides that the way he's going to grow his church is by forming a body of imperfect saints who are growing together over time through all of the mess until he brings us to glory. And we're not going to be perfect until we get there. But the only way you can become more perfect like Jesus is to be part of a messed up body. And, you know, you might be looking for the perfect church. And if you find it, let me know. I'd like to join it. <laughs> but you have, to, you have to find a body where you can commit yourself to. And you can labor. And you can grow. And it's, it's hard. And so, where is your identity? And so Jesus takes his disciples after Peter makes his confession and he starts to tell them that he would be uh, arrested, that he would be given over to the chief priests and the scribes and be killed on the third day he would raise. And Peter takes him aside, far be it, Lord, this shall not happen to you. And so then Jesus says, far says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. You do not have the things of God, but the things of man. So Simon is named Peter the Rock as he's confessing the truth. But when he, he denies the suffering Christ, he is called Satan. He has the things of man. And what do we have here is that what were the things of man? It is a Christ without a cross. It's a Christianity without suffering. And Jesus makes it clear that he bears a cross, and so will his disciples. One is the cross of salvation for sinners. The other is a cross of the fellowship of Christ's suffering. And so where is your identity? It's interesting that Jesus says it is as we lose our lives that we find them. But Jesus says... Not just to lose your life, but to lose yourself for me. Not just to lose yourself, not just to empty yourself, but it's to lose yourself focusing on me, following me, loving me, keeping your eyes fixed on me. That is the only way that you will be able to find yourself. Uh, Jeez Fernando, who was uh, uh, reflected on his 40 years of ministry in Sri Lanka as a director for youth. He says, I am happy despite the huge strains of ministry. And he talks about the suffering. And he talks about the most intense suffering wasn't from people outside the church. The most intensive suffering was in the body of Christ. But that, he also said, was his greatest intensive joy. Um, this past week, uh, the fellowship, Springfield Fellowship House had entertained about 15 uh, students from uh, InterVarsity. Do we have a slide for that? <laughs> There's uh, a team of students that came to serve the city along with the Clemson group. We are so grateful that you're here. And I think there might be some others from InterVarsity that might be here. Uh, this was the group of 15 students that blessed the Springfield Fellowship House of Partnering Ministry of Faith. And on Tuesday night, I got a call uh, and I was told that we have a plumbing problem. That uh, there is a, uh, uh, there's a problem with the waste system. And, uh, and my, I'm the son of a plumber. My dad was a master plumber, said, okay, I, I should be able to, you know, go there and fix this. Hopefully this will be a minor problem. Maybe it's just, you know, a little plungy or something. I, I didn't know what to expect. Well, it was, uh, let's say it was deep. 
let's say that when I open the basement door, that several inches of uh, raw sewage was all over this section of the basement floor. <laughs> and uh, apparently, uh, the house got a good workout, and so did the plumbing system, and it wasn't working, and it found a way through. And so uh, that evening, I was there. My daughter was with me, Juliana, uh, who's a freshman in college. And she had on her rubber boots. And she and I, with our rubber boots, started cleaning up a lot of waste. It was a lot of stinky, smelly waste. And, you know, that's part of the body of Christ, is it not? <laughs> you know, if uh, there is a lot of waste in our fellowship, there's a lot of mess in the body of Christ. But here's what was happening. As this was being cleaned up, it was creating a place of service for the city. And as, wait, in one sense, we were kind of dying in the basement, there was life that was happening in the city. Uh, the next night, Sandy Clark came over. He didn't have to, but he came over and with, uh, you know, one of these Roto-Rooters helped me uh, do the rest of the cleaning. And it was... Uh, being in the church is hard work. <laughs> it's much easier just to say, I don't want anything to do with the church. I'm getting out of this mess. But if you do that, you lose, your, you lose finding who God has created you to be. You need to be in the middle of the mess in order to experience the grace of Christ. And what you need to also recognize is that nothing will hinder the advancement of God's kingdom. That's the last thing. Nothing will hinder the advancement of God's kingdom. This is, happens to be the 37th year of, of uh, ministry. And I remember a friend who's now a professor at, at the Princeton Seminary who uh, heard in the early days when we were just like starting and we didn't know what we were doing and we didn't have any money and he said, I predict doom. I'll never forget those words. I predict doom. And 37 years, God has sustained and supplied us. Finally, J.C. Rowell says, let us mark the glorious promise which our Lord makes for his church. He says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The meaning of this promise is that the power of Satan shall never destroy the people of Christ. He that brought sin and death into the first creation by tempting Eve shall never bring ruin on the creation, on the new creation, by overthrowing believers. The mystical body of Christ shall never perish or decay. Though often persecuted, afflicted, and distressed, and brought low, it shall never come to an end. It shall live the wrath of pharaohs and Roman emperors. Visible churches like Ephesus may come to nothing, but the true church never dies. Like the bush that Moses saw, it may burn, but it shall not be consumed. Every member of it shall be brought safe to glory, in spite of falls, failures, and shortcomings, in spite of the world, the flesh, and the devil. No member of the true church shall ever be cast away. And so where are the applications be clear on who Jesus is? Jesus is very patient, but there's a point of decision that we all must ask the question, who is Jesus and who is Jesus to me? Get connected to the body of Christ. Become part of his bride. You cannot find your place. You cannot discover your identity. You cannot experience the glory that God has for you 
without being part of his body and get your identity in Jesus of the cross. Jesus did not tell us to get our identity in the church, by the way. The church is not your identity, okay? Jesus says to follow him, to look to him. That's where our identity is. And as you do, you will grow in his glory. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you give us uh, this passage to clarify to us who you are, uh, what your church is, your bride that you have decided that you will build, and God, our calling in it. Lord, help us to live in the center of your will, that we might experience your grace and your glory and your love. God, bless your people here. Use them for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us stand together. We have no closing song, so I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you with the benediction. Benediction means blessing. And now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus both now and forevermore. Amen. Hey, Seven. Amen. How you doing? Good to see you. Great to have you here, man. Please.